Let me invite you to go to Ephesians chapter 4 this evening. Ephesians chapter 4. We're working through a series called Benchmarks of Discipleship and uh, taking baby steps, working our way through. We've covered trusting and belonging and two-thirds of growing. And just because uh, repetition aids learning, when we talk about trusting, we're talking about three new things. I'm going to do a little quiz real quick. Who can tell me the first of them? A new... Oh, I'm going to feel bad. I've repeated this 85 times. A new... They're all L's. Lord, there you go. And new life and new love. Awesome. So it took you a while to get to your notes and figure that out. Trying to act, act like you got it on the top of your head there. New Lord, new life, new love. And then when we talk about belonging, we're identifying with three things, right? We're identifying with Christ, with his people, and with his mission. All right, so... We're identifying with Christ, his lordship through baptism, his people through membership, and his mission through service in the church, that we're actually, Christ is building his church, and we're committed to the thing that Jesus is committed to. And then we've done two two messages on growing. The first focused on our responsibility to grow. Both of those I anchored in 2 Peter 3.18, but grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So grow comes to us in the form of a command. Therefore, it's something that we are responsible for. So if we're going to be a growing disciple, uh, we're going to see it as an issue of character, not just crisis experiences, and certainly not feeling-driven. Right, and there's there's two distinctives that I, I distinguishing things I tried to show us, particularly in the first message, that people tend to hook growth to an inevitable pattern of ups and downs, where you go into backslide mode, have to have some kind of a crisis, and then you get your spiritual battery charged up, and you inevitably dwindle back down, and have to have some kind of supercharge come again. Right, and that treats it as something that's really actually sort of more happening to us than us taking responsibility for. And also the fact that it's a command means that it's an issue of our character, not just how we feel at any given moment, right? Anything that is of real significance to us, um, we don't treat as a feeling-driven operation. We, we actually have a commitment to it, right? If we live by our feelings, well, I don't feel like reading my Bible. I don't feel like praying. I don't feel like worshiping or serving, right? If, if we allow ourselves to be controlled by the emotions and the feelings of it, then we will not have a consistent pattern of growth because we're not accepting responsibility. We're acting as if our circumstances around us are, are the controlling thing. And that God has to change sort of the, the momentum of my heart so that I can grow. Rather than me accepting responsibility to seek the Lord while he may be found, to call upon him, 
right? To, to open his word, make it the, the, the delight and meditation, to put myself in the place where God wants me to be, right? And, and um, the, we, we're really fighting two enemies on that side of the coin against it, right? Our culture has become incredibly feeling-oriented, so we live in a world that 24-7 tells us happiness is just doing whatever you feel like doing. And ultimate freedom is when you can just, you can just do what you want, when you want, and how you want. And, and so we, we, get, uh, we get that message bombarding us that the best life, the happy life, is a life with no pressure, no constraint, no discipline. It's really just being able to, to just flow. And, and so our culture is telling us all the time, so, so we're prone toward thinking that that's actually what the good life is. That's why you don't hear a lot about the Christian life in terms like we sang about a moment, right? Oh, church, arise, get your armor on. I mean, there aren't a ton of songs being written like soldiers of Christ arise, right? They're more love songish because they're oriented toward a romantic. And when I mean that, it's not... I'm talking philosophically. Romanticism is a primacy of our feelings, right? That our feelings are what matter most, and that's what that that's what counts as the good life. And and so all kinds of cultural push toward that, and then that seeps into the Christian viewpoint as well, right? That's that's why. Uh, we need to be really careful about the, the, the diet that we have spiritually. Because if we're feeding constantly on a philosophy of the Christian life that is entirely feeling-driven, it will not sustain us when we don't feel very good. And there are going to come times in your Christian life when you don't feel good. Because it's not easy to march onward when, when trials and suffering and persecution come. And so if you're having to be propped up emotionally for that, right, you're not going to be prepared for the battle. So, so this first part of the growing is focusing on the fact that if you really are going to grow up, right, if you're going to go from infancy to maturity, then there's going to come a time where you have to own responsibility for that. You have to accept responsibility to grow in Christ and stop treating it as if somebody else is going to do it for you, right? Something's going to happen to you to make you grow up. Most of us recognize that's not the way you move from immaturity to maturity, from infancy to adulthood. The more you grow up, the more you're assuming responsibility for your actions, for your thought life, for your reactions, right? So we're responsible, and God wants us to see that because we need to take, uh, take charge of them, right? And in God's kindness, the second part of it was the resources he's provided for us. Grow in grace 
and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we looked last Sunday night at, at the gifts that God has given to us, which open up access to his grace, the word of his grace, the throne of grace, and the gifts of grace that are operative through the body. If I really want to grow up, then I need God's grace, and it's not hidden where God's grace is flowing. It's in his word. It comes in answer to prayer. It comes through the gifts that Christ has given to the church so that those grace are operative in my life so that I'm I'm, uh, both growing up into Christ and having the care and guarding for my soul that comes inside of a body, right? So, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna finish the wrap up with this. Remember I tried, cause I like to paint this image in people's heads so that, you know, cause I talk responsibility, responsibility, responsibility. You go, boy, it's like, you know, it's all on me. And it could sound like it's not grace oriented, but it is grace oriented, but it requires faith, right? Do you really believe that the word of God is the conduit of God's grace into your life. If you really believe that, then you will be in the word. Right? That's, I mean, it's, it's really that simple. If I never pick up my Bible and read it, and I don't meditate on it, I don't study it, then I'm, I'm demonstrating that I don't really believe that that's where God's grace flows. If I really believe that it is a throne of grace from which grace and mercy are available and accessible to me because of what God has done for me in Christ, if I really believe that, then I'm going to be coming before the throne of grace. If I'm not coming to that throne, then I'm, I'm effectively revealing that I don't believe that. I'm looking somewhere else for help. Right. And, and, and sometimes when everything else has failed, then I'll finally go, okay, I need to talk to God about this. Right. Instead of being, boy, I need grace. I need, I need what God has promised to me. So I'm going to go to the place. If Jesus Christ is the head of the body of which you are a part, And if he loves the body like Ephesians chapter 5 says he does, that he died for it. And he has told us that the grace that you need and I need to grow is found in the context of the body of believers. That's where growth will happen. As Christ works through the parts of the body to help me grow up into him. If I really believe that, then I'm going to be, uh, I'm going to be fully engaged in the resource that Christ has provided. If I don't believe that, it will show up by very uh, sporadic, indifferent, disengaged, responses to the body of believers, right? It, it will be that I look at it as an option for my life. It's, it's, it's a helpful thing, but not a necessary thing, right? That I don't have to be under the teaching and preaching of God's word. I don't have to have 
Other believers encourage me daily while it's called today so that I won't be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. I don't think that I need their ministry into my life. I don't think that I have an obligation to be ministering in other people's lives. Therefore, I don't access the, that, that grace. Right? So, so what causes us, to use the language of Paul, to labor and strive in this way, that's the responsibility part. To labor and strive is because we have fixed our hope on the living God. We believe him. Right? We believe him, so, so we access these things, and, and God graciously works through them uh, to change us and transform us. Now look, if you would, Ephesians chapter 4. And I, you can tell, by the way, I sort of keep supplementing what I've said before, is this is a really hard series for me to, to, to boil down to just small units, right? And this particular, this third one is, we're talking about growing. There is so much that we could say about Christian growth. In fact, there's so much I have said over 34 and a half years about it, right? I, I pull up my computer file, you know, my, my folders in my WordPerfect are sermons, and I have New Testament category, Old Testament category. Then I have thematic category. Or I have a theology category of where those sermons are, a thematic category. And in there, there's just like this massive one. Then there's one called spiritual growth. And then there's folder after folder after folder of series that I've preached over the years. Right? Because this is such a huge issue. Right? If we're not growing in Christ, then... then Individually and congregationally, we are, we are headed toward disaster. I mean, it mat- congregationally, it matters so much to Jesus that he walks among the churches and sends letters to them with stern warnings in them. Right? I mean, we, 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 we have to grasp that. Jesus says to the church at Ephesus, this church... Right? If you don't repent and do the first works, I'm going to remove your candlestick. Here's the, here's the DIV of that. I'm going to put you out of business. Because that's what the candlestick is the church. I'm going to remove it. You will cease to exist as a church unless you repent and return. Right, so, so, so we've gotten so accustomed in our culture and in the church of Jesus Christ in this era to, to treat growth as optional, to treat sin as maybe an inconvenience, but, but not something that might bring corporate discipline on a church that Jesus would put it out of existence. And in fact, we're coming to the table tonight, the mess at Corinth led to personal discipline. People who were sick and actually were asleep, God had taken their life because they had such disrespect for the body. Right? That just almost falls on us in our day so shockingly, right? Because we've become comfortable 
with complacency. We, we, we've become comfortable with a view of our Christian life that sees uh, it all revolve around us and God existing to serve us. Instead of us being called out of darkness into light and to reflect the character of Jesus Christ. And, and having the character of Jesus Christ be so important to us that it, it becomes the measurement of every element of our life. I look, look at, and we're not going to read the whole passage. I've alluded to it a couple times in the, in the morning series and two. But chapter 4, verse 17 becomes a second section in the second part of Ephesians where he's talking about the walk of the Christian life. Walk worthy of the calling you received, 4.1.4.17, he says, walk not like the Gentiles walk. All right, so you need to be live differently than those who do not know God. He describes what they're like in 17 to 19. Then he talks about why they should be different starting in verse 20. Notice he says, but you did not learn Christ in this way. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him just as truth is in Jesus. Let me just make a couple comments about that, right? So that word learn Christ there is from the word family that we get discipleship. You did not become a follower of Christ, a student of Christ, learn Christ in this way. All right, so he's talking about their conversion. It was learning Christ because they heard him, have been taught in him, just as the truth is in Jesus. So, so what I just described, Paul says, in verses 17 to 19, is not the standard for your life. The standard for your life is what you learned in Christ, what you heard of him and the truth that is in Christ. You have a, a new standard for living. And then he unpacks that in verses 22 to 24. That, in other words, here's sort of the content of that. In reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. This is, uh, to me, uh, really important. To, I'd probably put verses 22 to 24. If, if you're going to put a gun to my head and say, you've got one message to preach on sanctification and Christian growth. Right? You got one shot, that's it. It would either be 2 Corinthians 3.18 or it would be this passage. Right? Because both of them crystallize the truth of what's supposed to happen in our lives so that we become like Christ, right? I, I, I often gravitate if I'm away from here and given a, that kind of one-shot deal, preach 2 Corinthians 3.18 because it, it captures so much of what God has to do and what he's doing and our response to it, right? In terms of a bigger section, though, Paul opens up this whole end of fourth chapter uh, one of those folders in, 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 I was just talking about is one, a series called Practical Christ Likeness, where we worked through this years ago. 
right? That what does it practically mean to be like Christ? And the foundation is laid in verses 17 through 24. Then he starts to tell you exactly what it looks like at the end of the chapter as representative of the kinds of changes that should be happening. Here's why I think it's important, because when you talk about growing, how am I growing so that my life is not like an unbeliever, but is actually consistent with what I've learned about Christ? What does that actually look like? This passage comes along and tells us that. It couches it in two, uh, two statements, verse 22 and 24, which have a negative and a positive, right? Put off or lay aside the old self, which in the light, uh, which uh, is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit. That's the removal part. The replacement part is verse 24. Put on or in, uh, put on the new self which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. And then between those two, in verse 23, is a statement about our spiritual renewal. Be renewed in the spirit of your mind. So, so here's what I can tell you. And it's, I mean, I'm just tip the hand, right? For my own life, someone comes to me and says, hey, I'm struggling with an area of growth in my life. Here's, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go to Ephesians chapter 4. And I say, okay, so what part of this is characterized by the old way of living that needs to be removed from your life? And what needs to replace it as the character of Christ? And how do you need to think differently about it based on the revelation of God? Right? Remove 22, replace 24. Renew 23. That's the pattern that God has established for us for what it means to grow up into Christ, to become more and more like Christ, to, to put off and put on and be renewed. So let me just unpack that a little bit. When it comes to the removal in verse 22, all right, the former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit. Here's, here's what I would suggest to you that we need to think about this, all right? Uh, you lay aside, is, it's like take off a, a filthy garment, take off some old, uh, old garment that you have on. And, and that, that imagery, right, of a, of a corrupted garment is carried up at the end of the verse, which is being corrupted accordance with the lusts of deceit. The, the pattern of life outside of Christ is not presented as something with which we can take half measures, right? It is being corrupted according to deceitful lusts. It's in, a, it's in an active process of decay, and so you don't just go, well, I'm going to take off a little bit now. And, you know, well, this isn't that bad. I, I, can, I can wear this a little while longer. Right? But there's an actual commitment by us to, uh, if I could borrow a Jay Adams kind of quote, to radically amputate 
the characteristics of the old life. And the reason you would use language like that is because of what Jesus says, right? If your eye offends you, put in some eye salve. No, he says, if your eye offends you, pluck it out. If your right hand offends you, cut it off. That's, that's the radical amputation. Because he sees the fight, Jesus sees the fight with sin as being desperately serious. And that's what Paul is saying here. Right? The, the, the old manner of life is being corrupted with deceitful lust. Take it off. Remove it. Don't toy with it. Don't, don't cater it. Don't be neutral to it. Have this heart disposition in you that when I identify a pattern in my life or an activity in my life or a, 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 a value in my life, a thought in my life that represents the corrupted, deceitful lusts of the unregenerate life, that I will want to get it off me like a soiled garment. I do not in any way want it to be a part of my life. Right? That's, that's what he's talking about here. And that would mean then we have to be honest with God and ourselves and others about the sins that are there. And that's why 1 John would talk about us being sin-confessing people. That means we'd be serious about seeking cleansing Right? If we don't think that we need constant cleansing as a Christian in this sin-cursed world, then we, we actually have become comfortable with sin. I mean, Jesus illustrated that for us, right? When he washed the feet of the disciples and he talked about just washing the feet. Peter's like, head to toe. Right? And, and Jesus, no, if you've been washed... What you need is what I'm going to do for you, right? And, and what sometimes can creep in among God's people is, is either a kind of error that doesn't appreciate the fullness of God's mercy toward us and, and therefore is constantly thinking that they're under the hammer of judgment about their sin. But on the other side is the kind that becomes so loose about sin that it never deals with the, the cleansing that we need, right? Because when we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and what? Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. James confronts the people of his day and he says that they are to humble themselves, weep and mourn, cleanse your hands, you sinners, purify your minds, you double-minded. I mean, James isn't, isn't talking to unregenerate people there. He's talking to believers who we know from early in the chapter had started to be a me-first kind of people, right? They, they were catering to their own desires. That's why they had quarrels and fights. They were having friendship with the world, right? They were, they were not resisting the devil, and he confronts them hard about it. 
And, and you and I at times have to look in the mirror of the word and see the mess on our face so that we can get it cleaned up. And if, if, if we're never doing that, if we're never looking at our life and going, hey, is my thinking being controlled by worldliness? Right? Are my choices here reflective of having a heart set on things above or on things below? Are the conflicts that I'm experiencing coming out of a stand for righteousness? Or are they coming out of my selfish desires, like James talks about? Right? Because we live in a world that's prone to just constantly tell us, whisper in our ears, there's no doubt the problem's with them. Right? They did this to you. They're keeping you from getting what you want. You're, you're not the problem here. And, and, and what that does is effectively inject us with a Novocaine that keeps us from p- feeling the pain that sin causes so that we will turn from it. Right? God wants us to see that there are still remnants of unbelief and remnants of disobedience and remnants of deceitful lusts in us and we have to constantly be at war against them. So, so I, I, I have to ask myself, I have to ask you, right? Are, are you fighting the fight? Right? I mean, is repentance a real part of your Christian experience? In repentance, where you... You identify sin and see it from God's perspective and own it as a personal offense against God. And that you have a deep regret at sinning against God in that way and you want him both to forgive you and cleanse you. Or is it possible that you could go for weeks, months, without actually being broken about your sin, without actually thinking how, how I have failed to obey Christ and how my life has looked just like someone who doesn't know him in my speech or thoughts or affections or actions, right? If you really want to grow, it's going to require a commitment to remove those elements of life which are actually mimicking and patterned after an unregenerate lifestyle. Look at the replacement in verse 24, right? We are to to put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. So, so God has done a new work of creation in us that is after his own likeness. This would be the way Colossians 3 would talk about being renewed 
according to the image of him who created us. Or in 2 Corinthians 3.18, we all with unveiled face, beholding as a glass, the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. So, so this is the character of Christ, who's the express image of God. And, and this is important to see because what I just said is absolute, I, I think absolutely necessary and true. But the goal of growth is not simply stop sinning. It's not just a negative thing. It's actually stop sinning in this way and start reflecting the character of Christ. Right? Look, look at how it's illustrated through the rest of the chapter. Verse 25. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth. See the, the, the pattern there? Lay aside falsehood. So stop lying, but that's not enough. You can't, you don't just stop lying. You have to start speaking the truth. Right? Look at verse 20, uh, 28 is a good example. He who steals must steal no longer. So put off the old manner of life. What do you replace it with? He must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he'll have something to share with the one who has need. So the title of that sermon, when we looked at that, is From Grabbers to Givers. Right? That's, that's what it means practically Christ-likeness. It's, it's not that I just stop taking what doesn't belong to me. It's actually that I work so that I have something that I can take what belongs to me and give it to other people. Right? That's the transformation because the grabber is an idolater. He worships things, and that's why he wants them. The person who's really been regenerated and Christ is at work in their heart no longer idolizes things. He sees them as assets and resources to be used for eternity. Right? He, he sees this as something to be laying up treasure in heaven with. He's been radically changed. If all he does is stop stealing, he hasn't become Christ-like. He doesn't become Christ-like until he starts to be generous like Jesus, right? So it's a replacement. It's not just stop sinning. It's because it's possible for us to want to stop sinning for sinful reasons. Essentially selfish reasons. Well, and, and this can be the case, right? I mean, I, boy, if I keep doing what I'm doing, I'm going to ruin my life. So please help me stop doing what I'm doing. Well, what's the fundamental motivation there? Me getting a better life. Right? If I keep lying to people, I'm going to ruin my relationships. If I keep stealing from people, I'm going to end up getting fired or sent to jail. If I can't control my anger, I'm going to end up having all kinds of problems. If I keep having corrupt communication come out of my mouth, then I'm going to lose all my friends. So please help me stop sinning. And the only driving motivation is simply so that I won't mess up my life. And any unbeliever 
can want that. You know how many lost people try to stop those things because of those very same reasons? What makes it distinctively Christian is when we go, I don't want to do that because that's contrary to the character of God. Because look at the end of verse 24, created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. That's the character of God. He's righteous, he's holy, he's true. So I don't want to lie because that's being of the, the, the devil, the father of lies. I actually want to be a truth speaker because God is true. Right? I don't want to, I don't want to steal because that's the mark of somebody who's opposed to God. I want to reflect the character of God. Right? It's got to, it's got to move to that or else we're just trying to do behavior modification. Right? We're, we're simply trying to tame the animal so that it doesn't bite us not trying to be transformed into the character of Christ, which is what God wants. He wants to make us like Christ. He wants to make us different. He wants us to be conformed to the image of his son. So the goal is actually Christ-likeness, and the standard is the character of God. So let me just put a juxtapose next to each other what verse 22 talks about, right? The, 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 the operating standard of verse 22 is being corrupted according to deceitful lust. The operating standard in verse 24 is righteousness and holiness of the truth. Okay, at the heart of lust is desire. And, and really, verse 22 is an incredible insight into our battle with sin. It is us surrendering to the impulses of our sinful desires. It is us gratifying our appetites for lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, boastful pride of life. It's us being controlled by our passions, right? We're carried away by our passions and our lust, like James 4 talks about. Whereas what Christ-likeness is, is, is grounded on principles of God's character, like righteousness, holiness, and truth. And, and one of the really important parts of growing up spiritually is moving from being a person controlled by passion to a person controlled by principle. Right? And that's important. And I, and I know... Uh, passion is not a bad word. I'm using passion more in the older sense. I mean, you know, way, way, way before you and I were born, Christians used to write against passion because they viewed passion as something that was out of control and impulsive. And the Christian life was not to be one lacking self-control. It was actually supposed to be one marked by self-control because that's one of the elements of the fruit of the Spirit, 
right? The fruit of the Spirit produces self-control. So self-control isn't someone driven by how they feel or chasing after their passions and running high and hot with all kinds of intensity. It's actually a person who, yes, is fervent, but fervent under the control of the Word and the work of the Spirit. And, and we need to see that, right? Again, I'm going to take a second sort of side shot at contemporary Christian theology and worship and music and, and conference speakers and books, right? Because it, it, it's, it's big in our culture. You got to have passion. You got to live your life with passion. You got to have something that you really are charged up about. So, because here's, I'll give you a tip on it, right? Years ago, a guy named Doug Murin, counseling pastors in a book said, you want to, you want to know how to build a church? Go to the, go to the secular bookstore, look at the bestseller list, see what people are interested, and then come up with sermons that address those issues. Okay, so here's what I'm telling you. That's the mindset. So, so when our culture starts to OD on passion. Are you really surprised when all of a sudden Christian conferences come out? The passion conference. Right? Because basically they're going, hey, this is what people are interested in. Let's give them what they're interested in. Now we'll tweak it a little bit. We'll, we'll inject it with the right stuff. But the problem is you're, you're actually letting the fallen world set the agenda. And, 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 and zeal for Christ is absolutely right. We're supposed to be fervent in spirit. Don't hear me say, you know, be a bunch of cold, dead people. But don't confuse hot and cold emotions with genuine fervency for Christ. Right, And don't think that the way you're going to grow is get yourself pumped up. Right, At some point, all of us know that, that at some point, someone's going to have to in, stop enticing us with candy bars to do the right thing. If we're really going to grow up into an adult. Right? We use all kinds of incentive payoffs for children to motivate them to take steps of obedience. But at some point, if the only way we'll do the right thing is if someone's going to give us the equivalent of a candy bar, then we are an immature person. And that's true in the spiritual life too. If the only way you will do the thing that Christ wants you to do is if you can have some immediate gratification and satisfaction in doing it, then you don't understand the Christian life, right? Because we look on the things which are unseen and we think in terms of present affliction and eternal weight of glory. We're actually living for something that we can't see right now. We might not actually get the payoff for right now. I mean, read Hebrews 11 all the way to the end because there's this pivot point in Hebrews 11 where it goes from 
people received their dead back, kingdoms were conquered, and then it says, but others were sawn asunder, died, waiting for a better resurrection. And it says, these all had approval from God and died in faith. You are not going to see the payout of everything in this life. And if you're, if you're captured by a philosophy of the Christian life that has to have an immediate payoff, it's got to be fun, it's got to be exciting, it's got to be satisfying, or else we're not going to do it, then, then what we're doing is in, uh, we're, we're basically uh, ingraining immaturity. What we have to recognize is that God calls us to a path of principle-centered growth. The word of God, truth, telling us what is righteous and holy that reflects the character of God, and it becomes the standard for us. And that's why in verse 23, we have to have our mind renewed because behavior is driven by our beliefs. Right? Paul said in Romans 12, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So again, here's the battle constantly. Right? From the time, from the time we're able to understand anything to this present moment, you are having messages sent at you about what matters, how you should think, what you should believe, what what is acceptable, what's not acceptable, what's valuable, what's not valuable. And the, and the, and the constant question should be is, so, so whose, whose voice is shaping the way I think about that? Right? Whose voice is controlling what I actually think about the things that matter most? Am I having the world squeeze me into its mold? Or am I being transformed by the renewing of my mind? Is, is God, by his spirit, through his word, transforming the way I think so that I see life from God's perspective? I begin to think his thoughts. I begin to value what he values, to see that as the most important, the highest good, what God says about it, right? And, and there's the battle point. And real growth, real consistent, steady growth is going to come ultimately from the inside out, right? I'm, I'm not opposed to external pressures. Right? I, th- I, think, I think God applies them to us. He disciplines us. Right? God, God, uh, God wants us to operate with a kind of awareness of our environment where we adjust to it. So there are some things I could do that I don't do because of external factors and considerations. So don't hear me say external is irrelevant. What I'm saying is, Real, lasting growth comes from the inside. The renewing of my mind, the transformation of my mind. 
And, and so it has to be driven by that. If I really want to see real growth happen, then I'm going to be identifying the things that are unlike Christ and the things that are like Christ from the word of God and using the word as the basis for the decisions that I'm making. Right, just like Jesus. Matthew chapter 4. He faces temptation, and in each temptation, he quotes the Word of God. And he doesn't quote the Word of God like a magic wand, right? If I quote a verse at Satan, Satan will run away. We know that's not the case because he quotes a verse and Satan doesn't run away. But even more clearly, who else quotes a verse in Matthew chapter 4? Satan does. So, so the Bible is not a charm. It's not like a, you know, it's not like a, uh, a, you know, a magic charm, like your rabbit foot to wear around your neck or, you know, some cross to chase away the vampire of Satan or something. In each case, what Jesus was doing was telling precisely why he would not do what the devil wanted him to do. Turn the stone into bread. No, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. I'm not going to do that because the word of God and spiritual food is more important than physical food. Right? Cast yourself down from this temple and he will give his angels charge over you. And Jesus says, no, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Right? I'm not going to force God's hand to rescue me. I'm supposed to follow God, not force him into bailing me out. I don't put God to the test. Bow down and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. He says, no, you shall worship the Lord your God alone. Right? I'm not going to do that. So here's my point is, is wherever the fight is in your life, wherever the growth needs to happen, Right? You know it needs to happen because the Word of God is clear about what needs to change. And you know what the Word of God wants you to do, right? Don't lie. Speak truth. Don't steal. Labor so you can give. Don't, don't be angry, right? And, and sin. Don't let corrupt communication come out of your mouth, but only that which is good for the use of edification that may minister grace according to the need of the moment. Put away anger, wrath, malice, clamor evil speaking, be kind, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. And in each of those, there's a reason, right? There's, there's a reason given not to grieve the spirit, not to give the devil an opportunity because God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you, right? So there's a motivation that comes from an understanding of the gospel and the word of God, and growth happens like that, All right? God, God, I mean, there are times, I, honestly, I wish there was like a, a pill I could take, right? It would be nice if it was like, okay, I, I, you know, give me my, my vitamin Christ and boom, I'm just, I get that way. But that's not the way it is. I wish I never failed in the same way twice, right? Oops, sinned. Okay, learn that one. That one's over with. Right? I wish it were like that. There's lots of things I wish, but the 
reality of it is, I need the word to help me actually think the way I should. Right? My heart is prone to wander, and therefore I'm inclined to be responsive to the deceitful lusts that mark the old life. So I need to be absolutely on guard and not think that I'm above sinning in any of these ways as representative of a whole host of ways from the New Testament. Right? So I need to be humble about where I am and where I'm weak. I need to be hungry to see the character of Christ formed in me so that I am always looking to replace. I'm not just hoping I'll get out of trouble. I want to be like Jesus. And I'll know that my help only comes from the Lord through his word by his spirit. So so I've got to put myself in that place where he's promised to grow. And all of that, all of that is rooted in what I've learned about Christ, right? So it's not, it's not me-centered. It's not you-centered. It's not technique-centered. It's Christ-centered, right? That, that here's what we can be confident of. If we have learned Christ, if we've been taught by him, if we've heard him, then what Christ did at the cross is sufficient to make us like Christ. I don't need something else. Right? If someone comes along and says, hey, I've found the secret that everybody missed. Right? Or here's the four-step formula. Here's the, here's the key. Here's the secret. Here's the answer. Right? As a general principle, go the other way. Because the answer came through the sun, on the cross, and from the tomb. And he gave us the truth we need. And that's been settled for almost 2,000 years. I don't need something more. As someone once said, I need more of the something that he's given to me. And I constantly have to come back to Christ, come back to the forgiveness in Christ, the hope of change in Christ, the blessings that he has bestowed through his victorious death and resurrection.